Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Um, so anyway, apologies in advance that this is not going to be as good as your podcast. But Shut also, up. this show is not as good as Succession, so it doesn't need this to be. This is the thing. It can't um, – it's can't such be. a different thing. It's, I was thinking yeah. that. It's like – I mean, I don't know what your feeling is, but we're sort of – we don't allow any criticism in of Succession, really. Mm. I feel like with this, there has to be room for positives and negatives. I mean, it's so difficult because we don't want to be – slagging off people's favorite show and stuff like that. But also the first two episodes. Did you watch both of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought, um, so it wasn't the second film. Like it wasn't terrible. And I basically, sorry, my phone is making too much noise. Um, I think they've tried to make, anyway, I should do the opening titles because I think we're okay, going to step yeah, on Yeah, let's not get okay. into it. If, let's, okay. The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist Watchers and Just Like That. The Sex and the City Reheal. With me, Deborah Francis White, and my special guest, Sarah Barron. Episode 1, Hello, It's Me. And Episode 2, A Little Black Dress. So, Sarah Barron, you are a brilliant comedian. You have the funniest bones in show business, in my oh, opinion. Thank you. Also... You do uh, what is categorically and objectively the best rewatch. It's not rewatch, is it? What you, what you don't see rewatch because that's co- I, I think we're show. not allowed to call it a companion podcast because it's not official, but it is essentially a, a succession podcast. companion pod. Okay. Um, you do what is absolutely uh, categorically, in my opinion, and objectively in everyone's opinion, oh. uh, a companion podcast. It's like a TV podcast for the show Succession. It's an unofficial co- podcast, but that's in a way what makes it so incredible. If it were official, it wouldn't be so brilliant, I don't think. Um, can I just, re- can I fangirl about your podcast for two oh seconds? Oh my God, I'm not going to stop you. So it's you and your husband, mm. real life husband, just to mm-hmm. be clear. Yeah, who's, not my imaginary uh, one. 
<laughs> well, there's a fic- there are fictional marriages in yes, the succession. Yes, of course, of course. So this is this a is, real marriage. This is not fictitious, your marriage. No. You and your husband, who's a presenter and producer, obsessed with succession mm-hmm. and uh, the relations in it. But also I learn a lot about your marriage and your dynamic through it, which is another meta level. And it's called brilliantly Firecrotch and Normcore, yes. which is an insult thrown to Shiv and Tom, two of the central characters of Succession uh, by Shiv's brother. It's just an absolute delight. So you were the person that I wanted most and first on this podcast oh. because your analysis is second to none. You get gritty and you're always funny. And I couldn't ask for anything better oh, for Deborah, our first thank you. recap sitch. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I mean, I when you said you were doing this podcast, I was like, yeah, we this is the thing with these big shows. What I was feeling in the run up to succession and I am now feeling about and just like that is we need a place to put our feelings like these are shows, whether they're brilliant or we obsess on these shows and we need a place for our feelings after having experienced them. We do, because I see people all the time on Twitter going, did anyone see such and such last night? Because I have to talk about it. Right. Is anyone willing to just talk about I've, I've literally FaceTimed people I haven't seen in years who've said, <laughs> I just need to get something off my chest about last night's episode of whatever. Right. Now, this show is anticipated, um, highly anticipated. This is a show that started in the 90s. I mm. feel I grew up with these women. And can I ask you, were you watching it? Like, did you watch it in real time starting in 98? Or did you find it in 2002 or 2003 and get obsessed? What's your relation to SATC? See, I think I, well, I was at university from 97 to 2000. And I don't remember watching it at university. So I think... The first time I remember watching it, I was living in a flat in London. So I think I did some kind of catch up in those days. Children, if you're listening, there weren't really, well, there were no streaming options. If you missed a show, you missed a show. Um, we, in fact, we used to record it off the TV, but I think they did, they did used to do marathons on different channels, on cable channels. So I suspect I caught up with Sex and the City on some kind of marathon situation. Um, And a marathon children is uh, a broadcast binge watch. Yes, teach the children. That's right. Uh, So I think I was an early noughties adopter. Yes. But by the time, you know, the last episode was on, we had a party and we all, you know, wore fancy shoes. I mean, we weren't wearing Manolo Blahniks, let's be incredibly clear. We had no budget for those. Uh, But whatever the (laughs) knockoff versions of those were, we had Cosmopolitans and, you know, had all my friends over. So I was very into it by the end. What is your history with Sex and the City, please? So my history with Sex and the City is, I I think sort of very similar to you, by the time it was getting toward its end in 2004. And I, I, you remember the episode where Carrie is, it's Carrie's 35th birthday party and no one shows up. And there's a girl at the table next to her who goes, guys, I'm 25. I'm 20 fucking five. So I think at that time I myself was- old. Yeah, I'm so fucking old. And I think I was 25 then and it made me feel so young. And now of course Mm. I'm watching- And just like that. And I'm 42. And where has the time gone? So I got into it 
I like watched the last season in real time, then went back and was just fully obsessed with it from like 2004 to 2008 and know every episode backwards and forwards and know both films backwards and forwards and um and then rewatched it again when my son was born 5 years ago cuz i would just have to like sit and nurse all day and i would like remember my younger self remember a life outside breastfeeding remember a life were- outside breastfeeding and a life that felt sort of sexy and sexual and all that it's like one of the two shows that I have memorized. It's it's Sex in the City and 30 Rock. Those are my two yeah. that I know better than anything. I have a similar relationship with Friends. As a comfort right. watch, yes. if I'm trying to fall asleep or something, or sorry, Friends, I don't mean you're, the cure for insomnia, but it, you know what I mean? It's just like sometimes you need a comfort Yeah, your place. little friends get in bed with you non-sexually and they just kind of like hold your hand as you drift off. And that to me, yes, that was is Sex in the City and 30 Rock, just those two. Listen, we know also, again, young people, we know that these shows in hindsight uh, are very problematic in places. Yes. Uh, but also, can I just speak on behalf of Sex in the City and say, uh, you weren't there in the 90s. You don't know how bleak it was for women and how much women were shamed for their sexuality. And we were sort of meant to be slightly playing defense, you know, like, oh, mm-hmm. I don't really want that. But, you know, like, you know, it, there were all sorts of ways in which women were shamed. and We do not have time to go into the, the 90s per se and what bleakness was around. And the great thing about Sex and City, and it really was innovative, and it really was influential. It gave women this ownership over their sexuality, that it was not a shameful thing, that it was something to be celebrated over brunch in public, in daylight. And it allowed us to have conversations that we had never had before and that were not socially acceptable before. And and can I just say, by the way, my mum's generation, uh, although I very few of that generation probably watched it, it by osmosis... This is this is a tipping point thing, but the right people in inverted commas watch Sex and the City, right? Who influenced other people in society, so it right. became far more acceptable for every woman of every generation, whether they'd seen the show or not, to talk. Uh, in anyway, in the world that I know, to talk about sex at lunch or to admit to having a vibrator, it had a broad, broad influence. And so, if you are a young person thinking, ah, oh, but you know, it's problematic in these following ways, sure. But also, if you're saying, don't sex shame me, don't slut shame me, you have to acknowledge its place in the cultural canon. Yeah, and it's so it's so interesting as well. Like, I have this bit of stand-up where I talk about how many men I've had sex with, which I'm, like, really open about. And I'll sort of say, like, I wish it was double that. Like, the idea of women wanting to keep their number down mm. is insane insane to me. And when I do this bit, I make the audience guess how many people I've had sex with. So I've been like, all right, guys, give me a number. Give me a number. And inevitably, someone will say like seven and I'll, I'll go, OK, higher, lower, higher, lower. And then someone will say 30. And I'll tell you right now, it's higher than 30. And I'll ask everyone to pause. 
And everyone thinks the joke is, come on, guys, don't don't suggest I've fucked 30 guys, whereas, in mm-hmm. fact, I fucked like well over 50. And the idea, the point is, is that even now, like this woman who's in a really alpha position, meaning she's on, you know, she's on stage doing stand up, that there's some presumption that she's like, stop it, stop it. I wouldn't yeah, yeah. have fucked 30. It's no more still than pervasive. six, but four yeah. of those were my husband. Exactly. And that that that's still sort of there. And it, it does go to show how revolutionary it was and how much even when we talk now about slut shaming and this it, it's still sort of in the culture and these you know this is the thing right two things can be true it can be a deeply problematic show and a revolution all at the same time mm. i mean the thing is everything now will be problematic in 20 years time like right exactly you know, so it, it's that's the nature of progress we either want progress if every time you ask for progress, you ask for now to be problematic. That is what I would say. Yes. Um, yes. And listen, if you're listening in from the Sex and the City Writers Room and you're thinking, we need more lines like that, hit up my agent. I'm yeah. with Casarotto. <laughs> um, so how excited were you, given you were 25 when, so we were mm. 10 years younger than Carrie, and so you looked up to Carrie and the gang presumably as, you know, all this sophisticated, glamorous sex positive women with the right shoes out in these fabulous bars. And it was always sort of that kind of fantasy. Um, how excited were you for this new show? It's interesting. I, I, th- so I will say this thing, which this is, this is your line. So take the, th- this is something that you said to me when we weren't recording. So I just want to acknowledge like I love sex in the city like I love my family. Mm-hmm. So because it's my family, I'm allowed to dog on it a little yep. bit. The way that, that like was, you can talk shit about your mom, but no one else can talk shit about that's your mom. exactly what I said to you before the show. It's okay because if you were worried about your sister at Christmas. Yes. Because you feel like she's taking a wrong turn. You tell her. Whereas your brother's girlfriend, you no, don't know that well. she can't say shit. You don't fucking know her. I... Yeah, just you just keep walking. Keep that trap shut. But we are families. Families. So and these honestly. women are our sisters. Yes. Our problematic sisters. Our problematic sisters. So I felt that I I was as as everyone was, the the second film, which was the last thing we had, which was over ten years ago, that to me set sort of a low standard. And I was very worried about the lack of Samantha. So I was I was like excited, but not insanely excited. Right. So knowing that we were recording today, I made this real point of watching last night, but I wasn't at a level of excitement that was so extreme that had that not been the case, I might not have saved it till the weekend or something. Do you know what I mean? So um, and and I hate this. I fucking hate this about myself but if the guilty feminist presents is not the right place to put these feelings then I don't know where is like I'm having a very hard time and I thought this with the friends reunion and I thought it with this cut this if you think it's going to get us in trouble or whatever but like the the plastic surgery on some of the faces is affecting my ability to enjoy myself did you have Okay, so here's the thing that I feel about that. And uh-huh. absolutely this is absolutely a perfect place to talk okay. about this because I think it's absolutely it is a feminist issue okay. in every direction because there's there's we have all these feelings about why can't women do whatever they want to their faces? Right. It's their face, but then in another way we feel like 
our iconic women encouraging younger women to do things to their faces because the patriarchy demands youth. Like it, it's so complicated and it's so troubling to us that I think we do need to have this conversation. I Do you know why I found it less troubling with Sex and the City um, than I did at the Friends reunion? Um, at the Friends reunion, I felt like I was watching for some of the Friends cast and I totally understand why they do it because they're pickled in aspic. They're, yep. they're young forever for us. So when people see them, they're like, oh, I remember Matt LeBlanc saying some story about some kid saying, are you Joey's dad? You know, like it's it's difficult, I imagine, if you yes. are iconically young to age publicly. So this is no judgment on anybody who knows how any of us would respond in that situation. But I felt some of them like looked like their own spitting image puppets, you know, like it was yes. scary to me because I was like, no, you know, like I love seeing Matt LeBlanc look older. Aging is in you know, great for others, not for me. Um, but do you know why I didn't mind it so much with the Sex and the City gang? I think those women in Manhattan, the characters, would keep up with the latest technologies. Yes, around I think that's right. St- you know, collagen stimulation, and I don't think I heard. Okay, I heard Sarah Jessica Parker say. I've heard so much criticism that I don't have enough wrinkles or I have too many wrinkles. And can my face just be my face? And can people stop talking about wrinkles? It's none of your business. And I was like, she was talking about it for all of them, I think. You know, she was like, some people say I look too old. Some people say I don't look old enough. Some people say I've had too much done. And some people say, why have you aged in any way, shape or form? You are my youthful icon. How dare you age? So I, in that spirit, Sort of want to not discuss. Not not discuss it, but just more like I want to put those things on the table. One is Manhattan women like that would have Botox. Well, but this is what I found so interesting is I thought like Miranda looked great and she looked old. You know, she looked not old, but you know what I mean? It was like, but there, there was something it, it, it was what what upsets me about it in a very personal and disgusting and vain way is that I like to imagine that by the time I am 55, I'll, somewhere or another, I'll be rolling in dough. Whatever I want to do to my face, oh, I'm going to be able to do it. I'm going to find the best doctor and I will do this and I won't feel guilt and blah, blah, blah. And I I just sometimes think there's just not a perfect way to age. And I want to imagine that we can all be Helen Mirren. And the thing is, is that like Helen Mirren and Kate Blanchett and J-Lo, they're like the three. Jillian and the Anderson. Us, oh. Jillian Anderson, yes. But this, it just... um, Yeah, it's depressing to think even with a friend's budget. That you they can't, like make a you million can't do it the right way. You, just, you got the jeans or you don't got the jeans, and that's all there is. Yeah, with the friends budget, you can't not look altered in some way, shape, or form. That's and the I thing. Just, I I felt uncomfortable, and I hated that I felt uncomfortable with the faces because I really I feel like mid fifties is a really unexamined age those I, I when do we ever get to see tv that is sort of centering women at that age so I'm like excited for it and I want to see it done in kind of a sexy and sexual and glamorous way mm, I see I, you, yeah I and then there was something about the kind of plastic surgery that I was looking at that made it feel less aspirational. 
something. I don't know. And in a way, my my favorite scene, I think, or one of my favorite scenes was when Carrie, like in episode one, when Carrie is like, do you masturbate? And they kind of get into that and he starts touching himself. And it, it felt like really real and interesting. And I wanted to see sex stuff with Me people too. that age. I took a note of how far that was in. Because that, for me, that scene was where the show became Sex and the City, the reheal for me. Yes, it's like exactly it became like, that. oh, Here this we is are. what it can be. I thought sort of in that first episode, there, there were those great lines, I thought, in the very first scene where Miranda is talking about her son's condoms. And it felt snappy and mm. funny and filthy. And, and like, I'm stepping on my son's semen. I thought, yes. Yeah. And then that masturbation scene. And and I really, you know, I, I felt. There were moments gen- of promise. That's what I thought. Yes. Like, I think where that's, I was that's like, a very good way of putting I it. I can moments see of what promise. this can be. So quick pricey for episode one. And if you have not watched it yet, but you're thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter. Like, I'm just going to listen to these guys. Then I'll watch it later. Please be aware there's a massive spoiler at the end of episode one. So if you like drama and surprises, stop listening now. Pause. Go watch it. Come back to us. So episode one, um, we find Carrie and the girls, Son Samantha, and I cannot wait to talk to you about the meta explanation for where Samantha is. Oh, my God. Uh, Having brunch as per. And as we follow Carrie through the episode, um, we see that she's still very much in love with Big. Uh, she's reinvented herself as a podcaster, but she's finding it difficult to mix in with the millennials because they want to talk about sex in such uh, a graphic way. And her way was generally in her column more kind of witty and uh, subtle, I suppose. Maybe it wasn't subtle then, but it seems subtle now in retrospect is the storyline. And they're encouraging her to be more vulgar, I suppose, or more like blatant or, you know, less don't sex shame me, you know, that kind of feel. And uh, Miranda has gone back to college uh, because she's decided she wants to become a human rights lawyer and not a corporate lawyer. I have feelings on that. Charlotte is uh, really mumsy and obsessed with her daughter's piano recital. Her daughter's a very talented pianist and leans quite heavily on Carrie to come to the recital. The upshot of all of this is Carrie does come to the recital and we cut quite Godfather style between the piano recital Mm. and what I thought was like a big old product placement for Peloton. (laughs) was big. I sort of just took it as an acknowledgement of like these are like everyone who is wealthy has a Peloton now. It's just the given. Failed to be like super heavy product placement, like really going on about I felt like an infomercial for Peloton and they were cutting between <gasps> ride Peloton. this and I'm obsessed die. with Peloton love Peloton but cutting between Peloton and the piano recital and um Tom was like this is a strange cut and I said like back and forth back and forth I said I can't see why they would be cutting back to him on Peloton like it's a bit infomercially oh, so you didn't unless... know what the big twist was gonna be no I didn't know oh. and then I said unless he's gonna have a heart attack and then he does have a heart attack, and uh, when Carrie comes home from the recital, she finds him lying on the shower floor. His phone's got wet, so he hasn't been recalling anyone. 
weirdly, they kind of look into each other's eyes and have a sort of last kiss slash kiss of life. Mm. But she doesn't ring the ambulance, which is a strange yes. move. Yeah, uh, she just lets him die in her arms. But it's very, it's very romantic. It's more romantic than watching her dial nine one one. And uh, then the, the last line is, and just like that, Big died. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, and you didn't, because I had heard something months ago. I think my I husband think I'd heard said, so like, many different rumors. I think maybe at one point someone suggested it, but I thought it was what was going to happen in one of the movies that never came about or something in the, well, next, in the next movie that came about. I didn't, I didn't. I wish I could have been fully shocked by it. But the second he got on that Peloton bike, I was like, okay, all right, here we go. I did not think Peloton would allow it because I thought it was clearly product placement. I was like, I, I still am struggling. I'm going to talk to someone I know who works at Peloton because I'm still struggling to know why they did because it looked a bit like Peloton's going to give get you on a the heart Peloton. attack if you're a And if you're age. over the age of 55, really surprised. Kill you. They did do a bit of clarification on it of going, well, it definitely wasn't the bike in episode two. No, no, no. He was cleared by saying, it's just one of those things. And I was yeah. like, mm, it's, in my mind. Um, anyway, I'm I'm much more likely to have a heart attack if I don't use the Peloton. Let's be completely <laughs> honest. Uh, keep your heart moving, people. So in the second episode, then, we begin in the aftermath of this death. And, you know, what is made very clear and what I found very moving was that, that the friends sort of are there to support her, that sort of everyone's on this rotating schedule to make sure that Carrie is not alone. We see her selecting the appropriate funeral home, finding the, the proper funeral service. Most of that second episode is then focused on the funeral service for Big. We get quite a big sense that um Charlotte's emotional response to Big's death is exhausting to carry and part of the reason she's having such an emotional response is she feels that if she sort of hadn't forced Carrie to come to the recital Carrie might have been there when the heart attack happened or she would have been there and maybe she could have made a call earlier and maybe he would have survived we see the delivery of the ashes to the home and we see that Carrie is sort of needing, starting to need to keep Charlotte at a distance because as can happen, and we see a lot of this at the funeral and with Charlotte, when you yourself suffer a loss, people trying to be there for you make it about them. And they don't mean to, but they say things like, oh, well, when I went through it, oh, well, for me, and then you just, while you're in your own grief, you're having to sort of like support other people through the triggers that have arisen for them. And so in the final scene, we see Carrie with her three friends at her house. She has Miranda there. She has Stamford there. She has Charlotte there. But ultimately, she is still just alone with her husband's mm. ashes. And it's so real, isn't it? So like if Carrie's 55, Big would have supposedly been like 65 or 66, mm -hmm. which Jesus Christ, that is way too young to go. That's no age anymore. But not, it's not also like that just had like. I know so many women whose husbands just. That's a lot of life dark, left. But if you're 55, yeah, that's, that's a lot of life left. Yes, but it you also could, isn't. She could live to oh 100. my God. Yes, but but it also isn't dead at 41. Do you know what I mean? Like it's. it's no, no, no. Well, really, I feel like maybe Chris North said, look, I'll come back, jerk off, and die. That's all yep. I'm prepared to do, <laughs> which is what he did. Which is uh, what he did. Yeah, he jerked Good off, he him. died. Those were the, his two big scenes. And 
Um, presumably, he said, I'll come back and do that. And then what that means is we know that Carrie had the love of her life. What's dating in your 50s after the love of your life dies like? Can I say one of my, and again, we say this with love because yes. Sex and the City is family. It's family. And we care and so we can't talk about this without, you know, we've all got massive expectations for what this could have been or how we would have wanted it. So that's what we're going in with, a hypothetical other shows we could have had. I have to say, I'm surprised that she was much more devastated when he stood her up at the altar than she was when he died. Because in the film, the first film, she went to bed for days. There was a one of those brave scenes in inverted commas, where, yes. which is how women are described when they don't have makeup on. Yeah. We saw her like just staring out the window, catatonic with grief when he stood up at the altar. When he died, she was like, well, I've got to get my outfit together for the funeral. Can Charlotte stop crying so much? Like, Please, I've got to pick together. out a funeral home and I need it to be very classy and tasteful. And then it's like, oh God, you know, like, I want Stanford here cracking jokes about the neighbor rather than Charlotte here weeping and making me feel like I've got to reassure her that it's not her fault. Did you think, did you compare those two grief-stricken experiences? That's really interesting. And I I didn't think to do that, but I do feel that there is something sort of real and human in, I I thought she was very... Hold on. I've got so many thoughts on this and I'm not expressing them articulately. So here's what I want to say. I've always felt that Sarah Jessica Parker as an actress, and I think she's great, but I always felt that in the series, she was challenged by the more emotional moments. Mm -hmm. I felt that there was a way that Cynthia Nixon or Kristen Stewart had of sort of being able to cry for camera mm. that Sarah Jessica Parker never did. And so when it's like, oh, she and Aiden are finally breaking up, I'd be like, oh, shit, this isn't where she excels. Oh, here we go. And really, as she has matured as an actress, what she has given, and I'm getting chills as I think about it now, I mm. thought she performed the shit out of every bit of grief that these films, that that the first film and in Just Like That have asked of her. And I thought the performance of a woman who is just, it's almost like it's too, she's more depressed. So she can't even afford the catatonic state. Like I've mm. seen that in people where it's like, I um, a really, now. really bad professional thing happens and they're catatonic for days. But then their mother dies and the grief um, manifests in a way that's like, I, I guess I have to get on with this. And then six months later is when they can't move out of bed. You're you know? so right. Yeah. So I thought there was like a real humanity in how she played it. And, you know, the gift of what people say about like that kind of grief is that the there's like a gift in having a funeral and have and being a little too busy. Mm. And then when it gets you is six months down the line where this is just your life now. And this person is gone is and you're in your bed alone every night, you know, mm -hmm. waking up each morning without them there. And I was really impressed with her acting. Do you think they're going to cut to like a year later or something? Because I, that's smart. They might. I hope they do, because I'll tell you what, it's not that I don't want to see a show about a 55-year-old woman grieving, but it's not why I tune into Sex and the City. I'm looking, when I tune into Sex and the City, I'm looking for frocks. 
I'm yep. looking for Cosmopolitan's fun nights out, sex talk. You know, I want to see Carrie Bradshaw on a, on a dating app, which we never got to see. Mm-hmm. I want to see her get a dick pic or how does she respond yeah. to I don't really want to see her get a dick pic, but you know what I mean? I want to see her dealing with the modernity of dating. So I'm excited for all of that. I don't really want to see her grieving for a year because it's not why I tune into this show. I would love to see that on another show, but it's not why I tune into this show. Do you see I, what I mean? hope you're right. And I wonder if that is where we get to at episode three or four. Are they just how many? Do we know yet how many seasons we're going to get of no. and just like that? We don't know. It could be just one. It could just, and so it depends how many like, people watch it. Everyone's going to watch it. Come on. Yeah. Because but I have if, to say I had mixed feelings about it. You know, I wasn't like, oh, my God. But I, I was. I was like, all right, I'm in. Yeah, I'm going to watch this whole thing four times. I can tell you that's already happening. <laughs> so on that level, it was a success, even though I thought, oh, God, doing this without Samantha is, you know, part of the reason that show was brilliant was because of that chemistry and the four perspectives mm-hmm. and just Samantha gone is huge yeah and i loved everyone they introduced me to but it's you not don't see another samantha yet and, and yeah. i understand why they didn't replicate a samantha they didn't have a samantha yeah and i think that was smart to not try to fill her shoes but still they didn't they didn't fill those shoes a lot can happen in three years like a chat bot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Did you notice, are you a Hamilton fan? I am a Hamilton fan. So the actor who originated the role of Washington on Broadway and who Mm -hmm. was in it in the Disney Plus special plays, I'm forgetting her name, but the woman who's the new mum friend of Charlotte, whose son is bad at the recital, she's like gorgeous. Lisa Todd Wixie is the character name. The actress's name is Nicole Ari Parker. Yes. Um, and she uh, is, I honestly, I took a note, the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in oh real life. God. And her, her, the man who plays her husband in the show was the original Washington in Hamilton. And you think she might be a candidate for another one of their friends. It seems Uh, like her and Miranda's teacher and the podcast host are all all going to be doing some heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was into all three of them, but Samantha's still gone. Samantha is still gone. Now, can we please talk about what they did to deal with Samantha? Because this was the the big question of what they were going to do. I found it so incredibly fucking meta. The opening was so strange. It was like, um, they bumped into Bitsy Van Muffling, who's one of the favorite outer circle characters of all time. And she said, where's Samantha? And Charlotte says, she's no longer with us, implying she's died, which is not what you'd say if your friend had moved to London. Right. But it's a sort of 
trick, playing tricks with the audience. And then I'd heard this rumor that they were just going to say they'd just grown apart. She's moved away. She's on a different time zone. Fine. But then Carrie and Miranda talk about it and she goes, well, when I wasn't, you know, didn't want her as a publicist anymore, she didn't want to be my friend anymore. And I just feel really hurt that she used me as an ATM machine. So she, in other words, she was only my friend for pay. How do you think that parallels with what she's really sending a message to Kim Cattrall about? Oh, interesting. So I don't think... I've seen, I think it got like a quite a lot of flack for that. And Jeff was watching that part of it with me, you know, and so Jeff and I'll do a thing if we're watching something on TV and we'll go exposition, you know, when like there's this really blatant bit of exposition, but I just thought we need it. I would much prefer this sort of bizarre clunky bit of exposition where at least we go, that's the story. And I thought it was sort of. I thought it was a dig at Kim Cattrall. Like, oh, oh, see, that's interesting. You were my friend when I when I was paying you a lot of no, money. No, Deborah, I disagree on this because they've. I think it's sort of they've never been friends. SJP and Kim Cattrall. I think she's all. Kim Cattrall has always been a real um, odd man out in that cast. I think always. No? But in the big celeb feud, when she was on a chat show, she said, I was heartbroken when Kim Cattrall said, we've never been friends. How can we never have been friends? We've worked together on this special show for years. Of course, we were friends. Uh, I was heartbroken to hear her say that we were only ever work colleagues. Oh, interesting. So I think it's a dig. I think it's like, oh, well, you were only my friend for pay. You You broke the friendship. You moved away. I would love her to reach out. I've reached out to her. And the big public feud is when Kim Cattrall's brother died in real life, SJP wrote something on her Instagram saying, so sorry for your loss. And she wrote back, Kim Cattrall wrote back in public saying, you were cruel to reach out. You were cruel then, you're cruel now. Like really, like, you know, stop publicly reaching out and trying to give everybody a, a, a good girl image and has never deleted that. That's wow. what fascinates me. She's well, never, deli- think, it's still there. I think she is a brilliant actress, Kim Cattrall. I think she, she there's like talent coming out of her pores, but I think she's crazy. And I'm on Sarah Jessica's side all the way with this. You I think watch she, Team SJP. Oh, 100%. I, and always I like to reduce everything down to the celebrities that I met when I was a waitress in New York City in my 20s. And I, I waited tables on Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick on multiple occasions. And they were unbelievably nice, like deeply, viscerally kind people. And I believe this thing that's like, if you want to know someone's truest nature, just watch how they speak to waiters. That is absolutely true. But a lot of celebrities know waiters think that. So yes, they but might this be- is what I want to say, Deborah. I feel that my heart could wreck it. There'd like be divisions, right? So people who didn't give a shit and they're just rude and you're the help and that's that. People who know how to perform. Oh, I know how to speak to people like I'm a nice and grounded celebrity. Mm-hmm. And then people who truly have a kind heart. I think SJP well, and Matthew have truly kind hearts. I absolutely love hearing that. And I, Chris Noth made a statement going, it's just not what I know of SJP. Like I, Sarah Jessica's such a, you know, a warm person. Sadly, Willie Garson, who played Stanford, <sighs> died in the middle of filming the re, 
heel that I'm calling the reboot wittily every time. I'm never going to let it go. It's very strong. You have to commit to that. I'm committing to it forever. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So God, there's going to be this other, of course, they didn't know he was going to die. He died of pancreatic cancer and it's so, 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 so sad. But that's going to be another death for her to deal with because presumably that's the only way they're going to be able to deal with that. It's not respectful to the actor to say he just left town. So they must have had to rewrite his death. So God, can you imagine losing Big and then losing Stanford if you're Carrie? Oy, horrific. Absolutely devastating. God, I didn't realize he, he passed away midway. I thought we were going to see Stanford through this whole season. Well, it says, according to the internet, and that's not always, not I don't know if you know the internet, it's not it always as reliable mm. as, you know, as some things. Sure. But it says midway. Um, and, you know, he was such a wonderful guy and actor as well. But he stood by uh, SJP as well. So look, hey, we don't know. We don't know. Um, No one knows what happens behind closed doors. I am sure there are things we don't know about. However, a lot of people seem to have been on team SJP. Who knows? I'm delighted to hear she was lovely to you when you were a waiter. I think you should write to her and remind her of that and also say you need a little part in season two if there's a season two of and just like that, which I'm sure there will be. I could showcase my extremely mediocre acting skills. I, I, I'm, I'm excited. Um, I feel like you should be in it. <sighs> Honestly, I think that whole thing was about Kim You Cattrall. think it was a dig? Yeah. Okay, whereas I think it was my a, read was dig. we have to address this. So let's, you know, and, and it feels crazy that, that we're making sex in the city with no Samantha. So let's be just sort of as realistic as possible. I think if they wanted to be affectionate to that character, they would have had but her But they have were away. affectionate. They were, Deb, because then we see, we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but then we see that flower delivery, which was extremely moving in the second episode from Okay, Samantha. do you know what I think that was? That was a message to Kim Cattrall. If you were to reach out and give us an olive branch, we would want you back. We would, we would, we're open to you. Because the whole thing is about, now listen, I don't know, maybe this is a conspiracy theory. But it was first, it was like, I've continued to reach out to her. She, and Miranda says, well, that's all you can do. I guess she doesn't want to be our friend anymore. I guess we were just an ATM machine to her. I guess we were just a paycheck. Totally about Kim Cattrall. Then episode two Samantha sends flowers to the funeral and although Carrie didn't want flowers, obviously Samantha didn't know that, she allows this beautiful, you know, big display of flowers on the coffin to stay because it's from Samantha. So it's, I still love you. We still love you. We would have you back to star in an episode, which we know would get amazing ratings. If you wanted to come back for season two and this does well, you will be welcome. And we will make season two all about making friends with Samantha. That is what the message is. It is a secret message. I have cracked the code. You have convinced me. I you hope convinced so. me. I hope I so. Hope but that's I think right. th- I think and do you know what else I think? I think if this season one is a huge hit, Kim Cattrall might well be like, fuck it. Okay. I need now to ask you about the wokeness of this. Uh what do, do you think they had to address how different life is now and how different our worldview is now from when Sex and the City was last on and especially the movies, which really did not in any way, shape or form stay with the times in any way. 
Or do you think that's not what this show is about? Why are they going there? This is a nostalgia piece. Sure, they've got to deal with things like apps and stuff like that, but we don't need to see Miranda, who was well, a very certain corporate lawyer, now yes. become a very pulling her forelock and and nervous and worried and not able to, you know, form a sentence and making a black woman like educate her and also make her centering herself in this, you know, this narrative. Like, how did you feel about all of that? Well, I found it very, there was something about it that felt a little unrealistic with the Miranda stuff because I was like, Miranda is this serious lawyer. I almost felt like they were sort of presenting Miranda like my mom, who is, you know, this sort of like 60s liberal, but has also lived in an only white town and had only white friends mm. her entire entire life. And so my mom, my mom could potentially say something about someone's hair where you're like, mm-hmm. mom, mm. we don't. Yeah. Don't do that. No. But Miranda would Miranda, you know, it, it I, I felt it, it didn't quite feel realistic to the character. So I I I appreciated the effort, but I thought it was the behavior of a slightly different white woman. So it, I, I found it uncomfortable, but better to try and be uncomfortable than to not try. What was your feeling on it? To me. Miranda knew herself, she knew her own mind, and she was the one of the four of them that was most likely to keep up with what was happening in the world and mm-hmm. technology and innovation. That's who she was. When she was with her friends, yeah, she was a girl's girl. But out there in the real world, she was a senior partner in a law firm. She always had like the most up-to-date palm pilot or whatever right. it was back in the day. Children, a palm pilot was an early. <laughs> um, it was technology in this day. Uh, and I don't believe that a sophisticated metropolitan woman who had been through the last decade and a half with corporate responsibility, with uh, how workplace ethics and standards have changed, diversity and inclusion in the workplace. She would have been to so many DNI seminars that mm-hmm. I have personally delivered to firms like Miranda's. She would know all this. And yeah. she would certainly have learned a lot in the last five years. She would not be stumbling around now. What I would have loved to have seen, and again, I'm writing a parallel show, so with love to the writers who've written this show, can I say the show that I want, bespoke for me, please, I want to see Miranda with her own firm. I don't buy that this absolutely ambitious, you know, driven corporate lawyer hears about the Muslim ban and then just gives up her job and goes, I'm going to go into human rights. That's nothing that we've ever seen of her before. If she has changed in that way, great. Then I want to see her in a sophisticated way be there. Do you know what I mean? I want to see her know it, be it, live it, be in it. I don't really want to see her, like I'd love to see her with her own like boutique firm. And honestly, this is the dream for me. She's got her own firm or she's now the, the most senior partner in a law firm the women she mentors who are now 35 who are under her right look up to her she helps them get through stuff that she was going through but they also educate her a little bit but she's not like scared around them maybe sometimes she does say something that's a little 55 year old white lady and they're like 
put her in a place and she's like, hey, snowflake, you just got here. And they're like, well, you need to think about this. And she, we see her learn over the thing of going, actually, they've got a great point. I don't want to see her abasing herself. It's so, and not knowing basic things that everyone knows now. This who's is a it. Metropolitan, and it was like, it wasn't her woman. thinking, you know, like a, a, an opinion that I can have sometimes that I'm not fully comfortable having, but I, I think it is that, um, I feel uncomfortable when things from a different era Mm -hmm. are judged by today's standards, which makes me feel slightly more like a centrist when I think of myself as quite a leftist. Do you say what? Mm -hmm. So, so, so an opinion like that from Miranda would be okay. But this sort of, oh, um, am I, why are you checking her idea? When I read my anti-racist manual, I'm like, that's not. No, that's not Miranda. A, it's not Miranda, but B, it's not any. There are two two kinds of of white women who are in the corporate world as long as Miranda. One of the ones who know how to say the right thing, but secretly behind closed doors go, oh God, and roll their eyes and don't really get the point. Right. And it's gone over. They, they've missed the point or they're just going, this doesn't serve me. And I'm quite selfish. I, I liked the way it was, which is a big problem with white people in general or male people in a changing gender world or whatever. Or they go, oh, I see. I get it. Yeah. Okay. I need to make room. I need to make space. I need to not center myself in this situation. I need to not make crass comments about people's hair. Right. And I I just want to see her be one of those and grow from that place I just don't recognize this woman who's dropping her books and going, I'm so sorry. Yes, I've never also, seen her apologize. I wondered as well, like with, so we know, I mean, it seems quite clear. I mean, what we haven't also spoken about is it's very clear they're sowing the seeds of her alcoholism. Oh my God. But that's so overt. It's like, it's v- I'm it's going like to a bar it. that's not open yet and saying, I'll wait till you start pouring the wine. And then I've got a wine wine in my handbag at a piano, child's piano recital. Right. Which and is I, fun. You know, that part's funny because everyone's like, oh, I'm on the wine. But then it's like a third time she orders wine before the bars open. I'm like, come on now. We get it. And I, I'd like to see some, some, there's a certain, God, try and, if you, anyone has any thoughts on the right way to say this, but, you know, there's, and I say this as the wife of someone who is a recovered alcoholic who's been sober 20 years. So I don't think that alcoholism is a laughing matter. I do think that a lot of people of a certain age are not alcoholics exactly, but there is some, as you're sort of searching out little joys and ways to celebrate, there's a relationship to alcohol for people of a certain age that have always had an absolutely fine relationship to alcohol that starts to feel really interesting. And I would like to see that examined Mm-hmm. in a nuanced way. What I was going to say about the, the the teacher, it's like we know that there's some kind of friendship that is going to burgeon between those two women. Mm-hmm. And what's in it for the other woman? Like, mm-hmm. what what is she going to get out about being friends with Miranda? Well, I, Miranda oh, stopped her being mugged by uh, someone in a Chucky mask. But... And but that is the full tenet of the friendship at the moment, as far as I can make out. Yes, I know. But of course, it has to be more. I had this friend who I, I say a friend who I always disliked. It was a friend's partner for years and years and years. We're together. And I fucking hated this guy. Um, And I got into a very bad car accident and was in the hospital for weeks. And he came to visit me more than anybody else. So I'd always be like, oh, you know, he's sort of an asshole. But he came into the hospital more than anybody else. And then eventually mm-hmm. I was like. 
It's because he had nothing else to do. Like, and, and and that's the thing with the friendship with this guy with the, with with Miranda. It's like, yeah, I get it. She like used a heavy book to clobber this Chucky doll over the head. But really, what are you getting yeah. from this lady? Also, I don't buy that Miranda's not a Kindle person. She again in the old show, she yes. was always ahead with the tech. It was Carrie that was like, I can't use a phone. Yes. I can't use an iPhone. Miranda, help yes, me use this. Of course, this. Was she was always, the one who was like setting her up on email and all that And stuff. like she's a corporate lawyer. She would have gone over to that stuff so many years ago. It just doesn't, none of this is Miranda's character. I don't understand. She wasn't apologetic. She was ahead of, you know, she was always, I predicted, I was like when we were talking about this uh, before this show came about, I always predicted that Miranda would be the one with her pronouns in her bio. Do you know what I mean? Like she'd be ahead of that stuff. She'd be like. Yes. She was, and and they are hinting that she is going to, I think the promise is there that she's going to end up in a same-sex relationship, maybe open her relationship, or Steve and she are no longer going to be together or some way because she's definitely hinting that she's going to have, she's got this amazing chemistry with um, Miranda's That stuff felt good. Uh, I thought the, the um, I know Sarah Ramirez is the actress's name. I've forgotten what the character's name is, but I thought that that thing felt real and right that she'd go like ballistic at some woman who was smoking her son up at a funeral. But then they'd find their way back a little bit and kind of realize that maybe oh, maybe like just even just on a chemistry platonic level, there's something here. No, because she said to her, like she says something about queen of something and she goes, no king. Oh, I'm mama bear. I'm mama bear with my son. I'm sorry, but I'm mama bear. She goes, papa bear. And she's, there's implications there around uh, poking at the sort of, and in those ways, I absolutely would want the show to come into the 21st century, of course. Like, uh, you know, I. This is what's so interesting is that like, it would make sense that the team behind Sex and the City would address LBGTQIA plus issues well, Mm -hmm. but not handle the race stuff as well. I just, why not just give Miranda a black colleague who is allowed to be a sexual woman and a fashionista like the white women are? Why do the black women have to be? This is the thing is that there's probably no one who isn't white writing on or producing that show. I really hope that's not true because, and please, if you are a person of color in that writer's room, having your voice heard, you know, amazing, but we really do hope that there are women of color in the writer's room because I'm this like- This is this thing that always feels uncomfortable when it's like you sort of quote unquote fix the problem on camera, which is a great step. But if it's an all white, you know, if it's white people yeah. producing I and just, directing and writing about these things, it feels a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. Did you identify anything that was like a callback from the old- this is, we've got a little segment here called, hey, that's like a thing from the old series. Uh, did you notice anything that was a callback, a shadow, uh, a replica of uh, a line from the old series? I have a few if you want to me to start you off. You start me off. I, I thought I saw a few like fashion callbacks. But okay. I, I, you go with some of your lines. Okay. What I think is... When Big makes Carrie listen to a different LP every night, that is evoking the Moon River episode. Oh, my God, before he he goes. Yeah, he puts on a record as the only thing left in the apartment, and they dance to Moon River. 
that is the same episode where her shoes get wet because Miranda's water breaks over her beautiful oh. shoes. What does she say about the shoes when she sees them in the shop window? Do you remember the line? Hello, lovers. Right. Hello, lovers is evoked when she looks in her own wardrobe at her shoes. What shoes does she choose to wear to the recital? Her wedding shoes. Yes. And what and happens they're to wet them? Again, they yes. get wet again when her husband dies. I feel like I'm going to cry. That is poetry to me. They've, they've, they've woven it's it through, poetry. but not too heavily. But see, I can see all of those echoes. Guys, that subtlety, that beauty. Just bring that to the conversations on r- race and Miranda's alcoholism. That's all I'm asking. That's all we're asking. That's all I'm asking for. And yeah. God, uh, I mean, I have to say every time. I saw those kids, like when they first showed us Lily, I just burst into tears. I could cry now thinking about it. Okay. Raven Smith, who I'm very much hoping is going to guest on this podcast. Do you know Raven Smith? Raven Simone? Smith. No, I don't know Raven Smith. Everyone everyone who loves Sex and the City or even uh, loves to be irritated by Sex and the City, at Raven Smith on Instagram, follow him right now. He has such great insights and he does the funniest posts. And this morning, he posted this on Instagram. It's, uh, he's actually doing my campus Christmas, Guilty (gasps) Feminist Christmas show. Um, He's so funny. Um, He posted this picture of Lily in the movie putting Carrie's phone in her little pink cupcake bag. And underneath, he has put ruining Carrie's life since 2008. (laughs) Because Lily... And I didn't see this one. Lily was what stood between her and picking up the phone to Big and talking him down so that he would have not stood her up at the altar. Oh, my God. Which was the big breakup in the movie, in the first movie. And now Lily's recital is the reason she wasn't there to call the ambulance to stop him dying because they would have been in the Hamptons or whatever. And then he probably would have gone to the hospital. Fucking Lily. Yeah. So poor old Lily. She doesn't mean it. But. No, she doesn't mean it. We'll we'll blame Charlotte instead. I also I saw a very I can't remember who tweeted it, but there's a very tw- funny tweet this morning where someone was like, "Kim Cattrall should do a Peloton ad." I'm like, "That's fucking very funny." Oh my god, that's incredibly um, funny. But when they show those faces of those kids all grown up, I just burst into tears, and I remember the scene where Harry comes home and says, "I've got something too," and shows <gasps> and Charlotte the picture, the picture of her of daughter Lily. for the first time. I mean, I could cry now thinking about it. That's it. That's it's our daughter. It's making me feel very mortal, I'll be honest, seeing them all. Like seeing Chris Noth old. Yeah, And then it, they it flash did. back to the first moment of romance she remembers. I think it's the first time she ever sees him. Oh, it was very. When he turns um, around it, across a bar. You know, this and is he's so young and handsome. So young and handsome. And you think about and he seemed them the old first to me time. then. He seemed so grown up and sophisticated and like old. Like this. Right. She's dating this like well, old think CEO about banker and guy. This is what's so interesting. He looks so like, young now. Right Stop now. It. I'm 42 and I always think about like, oh my God, remember when I was 25? And you think when Sex in the City started, Chris Noth was, I think, supposed to be sort of like mid 40s, you know? And you're like, yeah. you're just. Oh, he was such a grown up. You're just the version of yourself that you'll re- be remembering when you were 65. And I heard a great interview, you know, there's a really famous interviewer in the States, Terry Gross, and she was interviewing Mel Brooks, who is now 95. And she was like, teach us. What what do we still have to learn by the time we're 95? And it just, it makes you think about time mm. and just trying to connect to the idea that you are, you're the youthful one now that the 20 plus year version of yourself will remember. 
mm-hmm. in another 20 years. That's exactly it. We have to look to the forward to when we're in our 90s and going, my God, we were so young, we were so relevant, we were so in the game, we were out there. My neck still looked good, you know? A hundred percent, I try and do that. I try. Do you know what I sometimes do as this is a little exercise that I do? Mm. If I'm about to do a show and I'm a little anxious about the show because, I don't know, there's producers in or I don't know, if there's some thing that I think I'm not enjoying this because I'm anxious some moment in my life, what I do is I close my eyes and I'm imagining that I'm very elderly and maybe I'm in an an elderly person's (laughs) home or in something, you know, I'm in a, literally in a bath chair in the sun and I have to be like wheeled in. And then I imagine I'm about to die. (laughs) I love this. And I am given one day to flash back to where I get to be young and vibrant and in my element and on stage, in the spotlight with an audience and having this amazing rapport with the audience and rapport with the other people I'm on stage with or whatever. And I get to live that hour, that show, that afternoon, that party, that day, that moment. I then open my eyes and I'm like, this is it. This is the one moment you get to live as a vibrant young person again. And then after this, you're back in the bath chair and you're gonna die. And then I walk out onto the stage. And I'm like, you're here. This is your turn. You're having your turn. And I I look back, I read a lot about the Bloomsbury set to Little Bankhead. I've been writing a show about to Little Bankhead and stuff. And I go, they could never imagine it wasn't going to be their turn. They were the toast of the West End. They were London. They could never imagine a time when it wouldn't be their turn. You're having your turn now. Live it. That is inspiring and meditative and beautiful. I want to do it more because I think it's really important to do it. Um, Quick question. Yes, ma'am. Before we go, one is, were there any lines? You were so great at the succession lines. Were there any lines that stood out to you as zingers? Well, yeah, I want to stand up in strong defense of a line that I've seen a little bit of criticism of that I thought Mm -hmm. was beautiful, which was how we close out episode one, where she says, and just like that, Big died. Mm -hmm. And I read a a few things online that were like, really? And I thought, yeah, really simple like that. It it has to be that simple. And we we net we know we very rarely hear her call him John. And it was, you know, she Mm -hmm. I thought she did this incredible performance of I I thought it was a beautiful death scene. And I thought, yeah, and just like that big died was gorgeous. I agree. Uh, I also found this is when she's watching a video of the funeral home, funeral home sizzle reel made me laugh out loud. What are you watching? A funeral home sizzle reel. Um, And I love, thank God, can I say for Stanford and Anthony, because they kept up the bitchiness. Like Stanford says at the funeral, when she comes in wearing this incredible, like Dior new look evoking outfit Stanford says bless her she knew she had to deliver a look today like everyone would be expecting it and she delivered a look and like stuff like that that Stanford and Anthony to me were the heart of the old sex in the city and they like dared to let them be that and I could do with if anybody's listening for season two more this show is about sex it's about fashion it's about brunch it's about having a good time And I really think, yes, of course, I don't want to see them say racist, homophobic, transphobic things like they did back in the day that now a clang, clang, clang goes the trolley. But 
I want them to be in the real world. I want them to be respectful of other people's identities and humanity. But I also want the show to be about fashion and sex and shoes and well, and maybe boots. that's maybe what they decided was that killing big was going. If we could have that moment, get through the grief, fast forward a year, and we're there. Can I also just very quickly ask you what your predictions are? Okay. Prediction. I mean, I'm I'm straight up stealing one of these from a thing you said because when you said it, I went, "Yep." Uh, I think we're. I think there's going to be a big time lapse so that we can get we can get out of grief. There's clearly going to be a romance between Carrie and the producer of the pod. Did you oh. notice that there kept being a couple of cuts to a very so Carrie was on the podcast with Sarah Ramirez and is it Bobby Lee? Um, but then they kept showing on the other side of the glass this really handsome guy who was oh, the producer. I did like, not notice that. She's gonna be fucking that dude, and I will really enjoy watching it. I think there's gonna be a big old thing that happens sexually with um because i think the hearing stuff with steve feels sort of weird and extreme and i think it's about making him seem old and passé and what i think is interesting is in marriages where one person cheats and then it's this huge to do a few years later the other person does it so i think we're ready for miranda to cheat and i think she might do it with sarah ramirez and i'm excited Interesting. What about yours? I Yeah, I wondered about that situation with Steve and whether the actor had lost some hearing or whether um, they were, you know, trying to be representative with disability, which, you know, is oh. often something that gets left out. But I also felt like, is this, their whole thing was their witty repartee. Is it slowing that down? Is it is it sort of sucking what was in the relationship out of the relationship? How does somebody handle that? Like if if I lost my hearing or Tom lost his hearing, I imagine, you know, it would be very challenging because there's a lot of back and forth. But at the same time, I think we would find a way around it. And we would, you know, I have friends who've lost hearing who absolutely have their witty repartee with their partners. So I just, I don't know what that's about yet. And I'm going to put a pin in that because I, of course, do want to see disability represented on screen in positive ways. I wonder if just in general, as you say, that there's going to be some kind of cheating there going on. I don't know. But what I would say is I really do hope they do jump in time so we don't have a whole season of mourning and not being able to move forward. Uh, Sarah, do you have anything to plug apart from your incredible podcast? So a couple quick plugs. I am doing a live show of my own succession podcast um, this Sunday, the 12th of December at 21 Soho in London at 4 p.m. We have Rebecca Taylor, a.k.a. Self-Esteem. It's going to be an incredible show. And then I am doing a much more lo-fi but still equally spectacular and fun new material night at 2 North Down on uh, Tuesday the 14th. Or come see me at the Bill Murray on the 18th of January where I'll be working up a whole new show. Not yet titled, but just doing some stuff. Amazing. And please, everyone, listen to the Succession podcast. If you love Succession, listen please. to Fire Crush Four. If you don't yet watch Succession, watch it with that companion piece. Um, on the 12th, I'm hoping to come to your show at 4, between 4 and 5, because then I've got to rush over to the Globe where we've got our Women in Power show. So if anyone wants to come to that Succession show and jump in a cab with me over to the Globe, 
That's a way. And I'll we tell can you right both. now, we're putting Rebecca Taylor, aka Self Esteem, in the first half of the show. Smart. She's got somewhere to be as well. So smart. The, f- the four and- to four forty five time slot will be the packed one anyway. Okay, great. Uh, Self Esteem is also going to be at camp as Christmas. She's doing a twenty minute acoustic set. Oh my god! At camp as Christmas, which is going to be incredible. It's incredible. on the sixteenth. It's at the Union Chapel. Everyone on the bill is LGBTQ plus and. Uh, it's got the queen herself, Sandy Toxfig. Where else are you going to see Sandy Toxfig and self-esteem on the same bill? It's got this Raven Smith, Russell Tovey, Travis Alabanza, uh, amazing drag act called Dozer Cat, Jessica Foster Q, Susie Ruffles just been announced, Tom Allen and I are hosting, Incredible. Jen Brister. It's what really going to be That's gonna be an extravaganza. That uh, is an extravaganza. Holiday queerness. So come and make your Yuletide gay. Uh, all proceeds go to Say It Loud, run for and by LGBTQ refugees running from homophobic oppression and also CANDU, uh, which is alarming Syrian schools against airstrikes. Um, please, please, please come. And uh, it's all going to be very COVID safe, um, masks and, you know, vaccination cards at the door. Um, so don't fear coming. I am so excited to see what else uh, happens in this show, and I hope at some point you come back. And as we go down the line, we are talking more and more about episodes where we're like, "That was the greatest moment in the history of Sex in the City." Yes, here's hoping. There were enough good moments that I feel hopeful. I just yeah, hope. I thought it it was. I did not think it was a car crash, and I thought parts of it were legit good. And I think that's a great starting point. I think. If they pass in time and Miranda catches up to herself and knows where she is and who she Maybe is, Maybe we're in bit, business. Maybe then we can s- rock and roll. And Carrie can just get into the hit the ground running with the dating and sex in the third decade of the 21st century. I think it's yes, going to be really interesting. All right. Fingers okay. Crossed. Thank you so much. Also, Charlotte's going to deal with a non-binary child, I'm pretty sure. Oh, totally. And that's and that so kid's last name was Swinton. A- and I was wondering if it's Tilda Swinton's daughter. I don't know if she's just a sort of androgynous she has androgynous gender expression yet or she's or, or they are or we're gonna like go somewhere with that yeah but i love that for charlotte because she's gonna have to cope with the fact that she is such a girly girl and how does she parent somebody who has their own gender expression fascinating Can't sarah wait. Barron, it's been completely wonderful to hang with you it was great to see you guys thanks for having me You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist Watches and Just Like That with Deborah Francis-White and special guest Sarah Barron. The producer for The Spontaneity Shop was Tom Selinski. The Guilty Feminist is part of the Acast Creator Network and Just Like That is on HBO Max in the United States and Sky Comedy in the UK. Join us next time for episode three, When in Rome.